That's enough of that friendly fellowship. Let's not get carried away with ourselves here. Uh, hey, um, we've got so much to do today. I'm so glad it's going to be raining when you leave because none of us are leaving anytime soon. So, but I'm really excited about everything that we have to do today. And, um, you know, if uh, certainly we've been praying together as pastors, looking ahead at what the, the Lord would have for us as a CCMV church family as we head into 2020. And I have to say, I'm so very excited about what um, our focus is for the year. So, you saw the little uh, the bulletin insert there. Let me just say, if you've never read all the way through the Bible, this is your year to do it. And if you have read through the Bible, maybe many times personally, but if you've never done it corporately, then this is your year. Because I can't think of anything better for us to do as a church family than to go together through the entire Bible. Um, it's a commitment, absolutely. And yet, I cannot think of a better gift that you could give yourself this Christmas than to just really commit to making your way through the Bible uh, your priority for 2020. So, as it says there on your insert, we're going to be uh, using a, a reading plan corporately that you can find both on Bible.com, you can find it in the YouVersion Bible app. And for those of you that aren't into those things, we're also developing a paper version that'll co you know, take you right alongside um, with that. We'll have those available next week. Most days you'll find you'll probably you know, plow through two, three, maybe even four chapters of the scriptures. And oftentimes the way it's arranged, you'll be able to skim through some of those chapter-long genealogies or the census information, some of that stuff we find in the Old Testament. But you know, it can be extremely helpful to read the scripture in big, large chunks like that, because it really helps you to get the sense of the flow of the story and of all of the different ways that the Lord was working over years and years. Um, admittedly, on Sunday mornings, we tend to go a little bit more slowly, right? Just a few verses, maybe every week, just so we can really explore and dive into some of those details. But what a blessing to be able to read big chunks of the scripture each day uh, just to see what the Lord was doing. So one really helpful feature of this particular plan, and one of the reasons that we are choosing it, is because the plan is coordinated with a series of videos that was created by a group of guys up in Portland. It's called The Bible Project. And if you're familiar with it, um, I need not convince you, but if you're not, um, each time you begin a new book, you'll be able to watch one of these short little illustrated videos. And what the videos do is in the course of six minutes, or some of them are eight minutes long, but they introduce you to the whole book. They help to kind of explain the major themes and the context of the story, uh, the things that you're about to start reading. And for a lot of folks over the years, um, they have told me that these videos have made all the difference for them that they've tried reading the Bible so many times and they get bogged down somewhere in Leviticus or in Numbers or in Deuteronomy. But these videos can help you to give, give you some context and just kind of to keep you going. So here's just a quick little sample of one of those videos. Uh, so if we could roll that, Bo, with audio. The book of Genesis probably. It's the first book of the Bible and its storyline divides into two main parts. There's chapters 1 through 11, which tell the story of God and the whole world. And then there's chapters 12 through 50, which zoom in and tell the story of God and just one man, Abraham, and then his family. And these two parts are connected by a hinge story at the beginning of chapter 12. And this design, it gives us a clue to how to understand the message of the book as a whole and how it introduces the story of the whole Bible. So the book begins with God taking the disorder and the darkness described in the second sentence of the Bible, and God brings out of it order and beauty and goodness, and he makes a world where life can flourish. And God makes these creatures called humans, or Adam in Hebrew. He makes them in his image, which has to do with their role and purpose in God's world. So the humans are made to and be reflections of God's character. And I think it should have already stopped. So Bo, if you just click on it, maybe it'll go to the. And next. they're appointed as God's. You guys are going to have to uh, to commit to this program and start on January one to watch the rest 
of that video. Now, the neat thing is, if you choose to read along using either Bible.com on your computer or if you use the YouVersion app, the good news is that all of these videos are already embedded right there for you in your daily scripture reading. Um, some people love to use the app or use the online version because they give you different options. You can choose what translation you want to read in this year. Some of the translations even have audio available, so you can actually have the scriptures read to you, which is, again, a great uh, experience. You can set alarms each day, reminders. You can earn badges for doing your reading. Um, you're also able to invite friends to participate with you in your own little reading group. And, you know, when you do that, you can either, you know, you can encourage one another with your progress. You can make comments back and forth with what you've read that day. Um, even if you choose to use the hard copy version of the plan, we would certainly encourage you to form little groups. You know, what better way than to get together once a week or every other week for coffee or for a walk and just talk about the things that we're all reading together in the scriptures. Um, if you choose to use the hard copy, you can still take advantage of these videos because the, the listing of what you read each day will also tell you what video you should watch to complement that text and where you can watch it. Now, one quick word about these videos. These videos are great. Um, I will say these videos aren't perfect. They would only be perfect, of course, if we produced them here at Calvary Chapel Mountain View. But... Um, but the videos are great. These, uh, this group has done a wonderful job, and I think in terms of giving you an overall uh, you know, sense of, uh, of the text, there can be really helpful. Now, here's the catch. If you're going to do the plan online or on the app, you have to start it on New Year's Day, or you'll be a day or two behind the rest of us. Now, the good news is that you can actually prepare now to start on January 1 as your start date. And if you just follow, all of the instructions are right there on the back of the, uh, of the bulletin. Um, you can stop by the info table afterward. We can help you get this set up on your phone. We'll have the youth group out there. They can probably help us all, right? Chances are the person that wrote this program probably goes to church here since I think all the software developers in the area do. But all that to say, we want to help you get this set up so that on January 1st, you are ready to go. Um, all the information will be on the church website. There will be downloadable um, versions of the reading plan. There will be links and all of that kind of stuff. So needless to say, we're encouraging you to do this with us as a church family. And what I always say to people about a Read Through the Bible program is when you miss a day, notice I said when. I didn't say if you miss a day. When you miss a day, don't sweat it. Just jump back in the next day. If you have time to make up the reading, great. If you don't, it's not a sin to skip a day and jump back in the next day, right? So don't, don't feel like this is some heavy weight. Um, you'll glean so much from doing this. Now, one of the other things we're super excited about is that starting back up in January, our weekly Wednesday midweek meeting, which is called Regroup, will start back up again. And this year, we're going to run it all year. We're not going to take a break from Regroup. We're going to meet every Wednesday night uh, through you know, January to December. And we're going to coordinate that Wednesday night service with the readings from the Through the Bible plan for the year. So each week when you show up on a Wednesday, we will have selected a chapter from all the chapters that we've all read that previous week. And we'll exposit the chapter, we'll teach through the chapter, we'll also connect that chapter to the rest of the book and to the things that you've been reading so that you really will get a, a sense of the flow of everything. So um, we'll also be trying to incorporate some of these different texts and some of the readings into our Sunday morning service. The Wednesday e-bulletin will feature. So um, all that to say, this is our focus for 2020, and we're excited as a church, and we hope that you will be a part of that. Um, I won't ask for questions because Lord knows I have enough of them that, uh, that I could ask. So with that said, turn to Acts chapter 6 in your Bibles, and we're going to look this morning at a, oh yeah, youth, thank you for being with us for that. The youth group are going to make their own group and go through this Bible uh, reading program together, and they're awfully excited about it, right, youth group? 
They can, they're so excited about it, they can hardly contain their excitement. That's why they have to leave us this morning. We're going to look this morning just at the first seven verses of Acts chapter 6. And it's a short section, but it's an important section. And I feel like I'm saying that more and more these days, but they're all important sections. But, you know, if, uh, as we've been studying through the book of Acts, we have certainly seen there's been an emphasis on ministry. And after all, the book of Acts is about the early church and our commission and our calling to take the gospel out to the entire world. And it's very easily, admittedly, for some of us to feel a bit lost. And maybe we even kind of wonder aloud after some of these, you know, where do I fit into this? And especially since, you know, if we don't see ourselves as the next Apostle Peter, right? We don't see ourselves maybe preaching to thousands and thousands of people. And I remember we talked a bit back in chapter 3, after the healing of the lame man, uh, you know, it was called, What Can I Do? And we talked about the role that we each can play individually as we reach out and minister to individuals. You know, it's that individual ability we have to really infuse the healing and the hope of the gospel into the life of a person right in front of us who's hurting. And yet as we now turn the page to Acts chapter 6, we're going to take a look at how our individual ministries can fit within kind of that larger context of the collective ministry of the local church. And I think that we're going to be awfully encouraged as we start to understand how it is that we can recognize the very unique role that the Lord has for each and every one of us in this room this morning. And we start to kind of appreciate the ways that he has prepared us uh, and he's, you know, kind of crafted us and set us aside, calling us to this very special work that he has for us. So let's pray and we'll jump right in uh, to our text today. Father, we thank you so much for all that you're doing, Lord. We do look ahead toward this new year, uh, expectant, Lord, with what you're going to do. And Father, we pray uh, even now that you'd help us, Lord, to be focused on the, the text here in front of us, Lord, to be focused on the work that your spirit wants to do within each one of us, Lord. We pray uh, that the teaching ministry of your spirit would be manifest here today, Lord. Give us ears to hear what your spirit would say to your church, Lord, collectively as well as individually. Uh, Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So chapter 5. You remember chapter 5 kind of featured some of the first kind of dark notes in this beautiful symphony of the early days of the early church. We saw that Satan had switched up his strategy. Remember, he was unsuccessful in his attempts with this pressure from the outside to try to oppose the church, that he moved and worked and wanted to corrupt the church from the inside by introducing hypocrisy into the ranks of believers. And yet we watched the way the Lord purged that problem right, strategically and swiftly right from their midst. And then we saw the church thriving once again. And now in the second half of our chapter, we watched as these religious leaders, remember two different times, they had arrested the apostles, they threatened them. Finally, they beat them and they ordered them again not to teach, not to preach in the name of Jesus, which of course the apostles very kindly said, we cannot obey that. And so when we last left them in chapter 5, remember in verse 41 and 42, it said that they departed from the presence of the council, that they were rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple and in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And we talked at the very end of our time together last week that there seemed to be this fresh, this new, this wonderful outpouring of the Holy Spirit as he was blessing their ministry. And so not surprisingly, as we pick up today and continue on in chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 1, we read that in those days when the number of disciples was 
multiplying. Now let's just pause right there because before we go any further, I think we just need to take a moment to make mention and hopefully take some encouragement from the math so far in the book of Acts. And you remember back in chapter 2 that 3,000 souls were saved there on the day of Pentecost. And remember it said at the end of chapter 2 that the Lord was adding to the church daily those who were being saved. And then we saw in chapter 4 that the church grew by another 5,000 people in one day after one sermon. And they were added to the church. Here, at the beginning of chapter 6... It says that the number of disciples was what? It was multiplying. But now keep in mind, between the addition to the church and the multiplication here of the church, remember that there was also some subtraction from the church. Remember that the Lord had to deal and remove Ananias and Sapphira back in chapter 5. And I wanted to take the time to bring this up because sometimes it seems like the very same thing can happen to us personally. In our lives, things really seem to be moving along and we feel like we're growing and we're really being added to spiritually. And when suddenly we come face to face, we're hit with this kind of a painful period of subtraction. And it feels all of a sudden like we're losing something. And if you're in that place today, if you feel like you're in a place of subtraction, take hope. Because just as we see here, it most often means that good things are coming very soon. Because just as he did here in the book of Acts, the Lord sometimes subtracts in our own lives right before he starts to multiply. So here we see the early church going through this process of subtraction. The Lord was preparing them for this season of multiplication and of great growth. And yet what we're going to also see and need to keep in mind is that with this growth, so often comes some growing pains. So at this point, as we continue in verse 1, it looked as though the church couldn't be stopped. And so I think, again, we see Satan understanding he needs to redouble his efforts if he was going to hinder this work. So again, in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplying, now we read that there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So here Satan had worked his way into the hearts of some of these early believers, and he'd started them on a spirit of murmuring and of complaining among themselves. Remember, from opposition on the outside to hypocrisy on the inside, now Satan's latest strategy is divide and conquer. He wants to try to pit one group of the early believers against another group. And notice that he does it, as he so often does in our lives, He does it by exploiting an already existing concern and blowing it right into a conflict. Because what was happening here involved two distinct groups and kind of an ongoing issue among the then Jewish believers in Jesus. During the days of Alexander the Great, the Greek culture and style of dress and the Greek philosophy of life had permeated the then known world. And as a result, many of those Jews who were living outside of Israel at the time started to adopt those Grecian ways. And they became known as Grecians or Hellenists. Now there were other Jews, on the other hand, who were referred to as the Hebrews. They were the ones, for the most part, that lived in Israel, specifically in Jerusalem, and they were the ones who remained more true to the old ways and to the old traditions of Judaism. And so to oversimplify this situation, the Hebrews tended to regard the Hellenists as unspiritual compromisers with Greek culture, and the Hellenists looked at the Hebrews as these holier-than-thou traditionalists. So there was already this natural suspicion between these two groups, and here Satan tries to take advantage of that standing suspicion with this accusation 
from some of the Hellenists that their widows were not being cared for in the same way that the Hebrew widows were being cared for. So here are these two groups of people who historically had been at odds with one another, but now they'd been united together in Jesus. And yet look at the way that the enemy uses even that past animosity to stir up this present controversy. And what I think is interesting about this is Luke actually doesn't tell us who was right or who was wrong. I think probably because it was both. So in, certainly in a growing congregation of this size, it was probably inevitable that someone's needs were going to be overlooked, right? We're talking thousands and thousands of people. It may have been that these Greek-speaking widows couldn't make their needs known to the Aramaic-speaking leaders. It may have simply been poor administration or poor supervision of what was distributed. It may have been that the 12 apostles were just trying to do too much and things started falling through the cracks. But what I think that we can say with a certain degree of certainty is that based on what we know so far about these leaders, it seems very unlikely that this issue was due to some kind of intentional or strategic singling out of these poor women to be neglected. This was probably just an accident. And it is so like Satan, isn't it? To take advantage of a very unintentional wrong and to create a full-blown conflict out of it. And I like the way that one author put it. He said that the Hebrews were right in their hearts and the Hellenists were right in their facts. And these were perfect conditions for a church-splitting conflict. So the Hellenists, they probably were being neglected and yet the Hebrews in their hearts hadn't intended to do anything. But this is a situation that was about to explode. Now the, tr the truth is, when a church faces a serious problem, it actually presents both the leaders and the church members with a number of opportunities for growth. And if we can look at these kinds of problems rightly, they give us, again, golden opportunities to really look at the ministry and, and to think and discover what kinds of changes would better help it to grow and, and to thrive in a more healthy way. It's the time when everything seems to be going great when things are too easy, it's so easy to just keep the status quo, and yet this is never a healthy place to be. There was a pastor named Henry Ward Beecher. He was a very influential American minister back in the 1800s, and he once called success a last year's nest from which the birds have flown. So here's this nest that still may be in good shape, and yet all the life has left it. And so I think it's a word for us that we need to make sure that we're regularly examining not only our ministries, but more importantly, our marriages, right? Our relationships, and that we're really examining our individual lives so we don't fall into that comfortable place where we've stopped growing. So problems really can be a great motivator for growth as long as we approach them with open hearts and open minds. And here the apostles, they're faced with these internal disputes and the potential of division. And we're going to see that how they dealt with these things would make all the difference. So here are the people coming to the apostles. They're saying, hey, you guys need to fix this. You know, you need to make this situation better. And it says in verse 2, it says that then the 12 summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, it is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now this is God-directed direction. Because effectively what the apostles are saying is, hey, we see the need. 
You know, Hebrews, Hellenists, traditionalists, liberals, we know that the widows need to be cared for, and we can fix this, but we need your help. Because our calling isn't the distribution of food, our calling is the distribution of the word. Now, there is so much that's wrapped up in just this few verses, but first of all, I want to clear up a couple of things that sometimes can create some confusion. So the the issue at hand probably didn't actually involve the serving of food or the cleaning up of like dining tables for these widows. The expression serves tables probably refers more to the handling of the administration of all the financial and the practical details that were involved in taking care of these women. The word tables actually means a place where a money changer would have done his collecting or his exchanging of money. And so it's probably used here to refer to that place where the widows would actually come and receive the funds, where they would be administered. Now, what's important, I think, also to understand is that whether we're talking about a table for serving food, whether we're talking about a table for distributing money, there are some who believe that the apostles' reluctance to do this kind of work themselves was an evidence of some kind of a superior attitude that the 12 had. That somehow they considered themselves to be above that kind of work. But I want to strongly suggest to you this morning that this could not be further from the truth. In fact, I believe it's actually exactly the opposite. The disciples did not consider themselves at all to be above this kind of work, but in a very real sense, they saw themselves as below it. Now, here's what I mean by that. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes to this church, and he's trying to describe to them his own ministry among them. And this is where he writes, he says in 1 Corinthians 4.1, Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. Now, there are several different words used in the New Testament to describe a servant. And yet the one that Paul uses here is a very specific word which literally means an under rower. And it was a word that he probably used because those there in that port city of Corinth would have been sure to understand it in the sense that it's a person who's a rower down below the decks of these huge galley ships, like the war galley ships that the Romans had. Now, what we're told is that these ships had a a very low deck, probably just at or just above the waterline, and there were these seats in rows where the slaves, who were for the most part chained there and forced into service as they rowed and powered these huge ships. Many of these slaves we know were actually highly educated people, and yet they were captives who'd been taken by the Romans. And of course, we think of Charlton Heston, right, and Ben-Hur, down there rowing and rowing down below the decks as a slave. And that is precisely the picture that Paul is painting here, because that's the biblical, that's the scriptural picture of a pastor, an under rower, a slave who's responsible to listen to the orders of the captain and to keep things moving along. Let me just say this. If you go into a church and you get the sense that the pastor expects you to serve him, then you should walk back out of that church. Okay, good. Everybody's still here. That's awesome. Okay, good. Thought I'd take my chances on that one. So if you leave now, I'm just going to assume you had to use the restroom. The pastors are the under rowers who serve the church by serving Jesus, who's the head of the church. And G. Campbell Morgan wrote this about an under rower. He said, it's one who acts under direction, asks no questions, one who does the thing he's appointed to do without hesitation, and one who reports only to the one who is over him. And so the apostles are saying to the people here, we know what we are called to do, and we need to focus our attention on doing just that 
or none of us are ever going to get anywhere. Because without the attention of the word of God and the attention to prayer, we are all sunk. You see what I did there? Rowing, boats, sunk. Bad when you've got to explain the jokes, I know. So in the church, it's the pastors who are the under rowers to provide for and to really protect that undergirding of the word of God and of prayer. And I can tell you exactly how much all of the pastors here at this church desire to do just that. And I can also tell you how very difficult it is so often for them and for me to try not to fall into that trap of trying to fill every need. And for us just to stay focused on keeping the main thing the main thing. Because it may very well be that the apostles themselves had created this problem because they were trying to do too much. It's so easy for a pastor to want to fill each and every need personally because we hate to see people hurting. What happens is that when they do that, a pastor can fail to fulfill his calling to feed and to nurture the flock with the word of God. And all you end up with at that point is starving sheep. Because what happens is that though all the practical needs seem to be being met, what it creates is a real spiritual void. There's a spiritual deficiency there that makes it possible for just these kinds of problems to develop. And that's why D.L. Moody, if you've ever read him, he used to say that it was better to put 10 men to work than to try to do the work of 10 men. And most certainly it is better. But it's not better just because it's better for the leaders, but it's better for the workers that they enlist, and ultimately it's better for the church that they're serving as a whole. So I think that this may have been a wake-up call for the apostles, that they needed to stay faithful. They needed to be focused on their central calling, that God hadn't called them to be everything or to do everything for the church, but that instead God wanted to raise up others who could serve in other ways and who could do some of these other important jobs. And so again, look what it says in verse 3. They said, Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Now notice the qualifications of these guys. They were focused on the character of these men, not just their abilities. Firstly, they had to be men of good reputation. They had to be men that the church family would feel confident in. And most importantly, notice that they had to be men who were both full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. So they were to be men who were both spiritually minded and practically minded. And that is a difficult combination to find. So seemingly the work was simple. It was just practical service. And yet they wanted these men to be well qualified in a spiritual sense, just because of the danger that existed for more division. Remember, as Christians, we operate in the realm of the Spirit. We're always called to be walking in the Spirit. And so every service that we do is a spiritual service. And we have this tendency in our lives to divide things up between the things that are sacred or the things that are secular. And yet with the Lord, there isn't that kind of a distinction. He wants all of us, right? Lock, stock, and barrel. He wants us at work. He wants us at home. He wants us when we're at play. He wants us while we're out in the community. And it's that idea that we saw. Remember what Jesus said just before his ascension in Acts chapter 1. In verse 8, he said that we would receive power when the Holy Spirit had come upon us. And that we would what? Be witnesses to him in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So whatever we're doing, wherever we're going, we would be witnessing. So 
Our work at work is spiritual service. Our work in our families is a spiritual service. Our work in the ministry, no matter how mundane it might seem, that's spiritual service. And it requires that we be well prepared and well equipped in a spiritual sense. They were much more concerned with the internal attributes of these people than their outward abilities. And notice again, notice the wisdom that they demonstrated not only in who they chose, but I love how they chose them. Because notice that they empowered the people to respond to the Lord to help them to resolve the problem. They engaged the whole body of believers. It says they're the multitude of the disciples and they were pursuing a solution with them with communication and investigation and they wanted all of the insights and the input from among all the people. Even asking those, and I think probably especially asking those who had felt wronged in the first place, hey, you help us find some men that can take care of this problem. I would go so far as to bet that someone first suggested that the apostles themselves get more involved and give more direct attention to the things that were happening here. But so often, it's that opportunity to meet those unmet needs. Those are the best ways to bring more people into the ministry so that more people are able to utilize the gifts that the Holy Spirit has given to them. Now, we have talked at length, right, mainly because we've seen these different gifts operating in these first chapters of the book of Acts. We've talked about all those different spiritual gifts listed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. You remember it's the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge and faith and gifts of healings, the working of miracles, prophecy, the discerning of spirits, different kinds of tongues, the interpretation of tongues. But the First Corinthians passage is not the only passage with a listing of spiritual gifts. To the Romans, also coincidentally in chapter 12, Paul gives us another list of another seven specific spiritual gifts of grace. And these gifts kind of encompass how it is that we all function in this ministry together as a body. In Romans chapter 12, he says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, and he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. So these are different gifts. Some of them are similar to what we've seen before, and yet some are absolutely new. Prophecy, of course, we've talked about. It's that ability to deliver God's message to God's people. Not so much the foretelling in a, in a predictive sense, but more accurately, the forthtelling, forthtelling the heart and the, the mind of God. And teaching, like it, has in mind instruction and explaining and expounding the different things we see in the scriptures. Exhortation is what encourages people to practice those things that they've been taught. And all of these things are necessary for a healthy Christian life. Now, this next one, ministry, that has in view this very broad picture of simply serving in practical ways. Right? It's any act of service that's done in genuine love for the building up of the community of believers. And very often, these things happen behind the scenes. Because those with the gift of ministry fill many of the gaps of the ministry They meet the needs of the church as it fulfills the Great Commission. And Paul sees this as a very important ministry and a gifting from the Holy Spirit. 
leading, listed separately. Some translations might say, uh, you know, steering or ruling or governing. And it's the idea of that person who can kind of organize and direct and implement some of these plans and lead others as they serve in the church. It's very often connected with what uh, Paul says to the Corinthians. He talks about the gift of administrations, right? It's that gift of making sure that people are doing things decently and in order. Paul also includes giving here, and he includes it as a specific spiritual gifting. Now, we are all called to tithe, right, to regularly give of our first fruits to the work of the ministry, and yet there's a gifting that refers to someone specifically who's a channel through whom God provides resources for the body, And Paul even goes so far as to say that it's important that this gift has to be practiced, he says, with liberality. Because what you find is someone who's called and gifted to be a giver, when they stop giving liberally, oftentimes they'll see that their resources dry up. Because they've forgotten why it is that God was blessing them in the first place. Now this last gift, mercy, again, We are all called to be merciful, amen, because God has been merciful to us. And yet the gift of mercy is this supernatural ability to be patient and to be compassionate toward people who are suffering or people who are afflicted. It's to have a great sense of empathy for others as they go through their trials and their sufferings and maybe to come alongside people for extended periods of time and really see them through their healing process. And notice Paul says that this needs to be done with cheerfulness. Now I think we can all agree it can be hard enough to show mercy But how much more difficult is it to be cheerful about it, which just reminds us that this gift of showing mercy, as well as all these other gifts in this list, these gifts are nothing less than the supernatural gifts of the Holy Spirit. And my point in including all of this in the little context here of our text in Acts chapter 6 hear this, it's very possible that not everyone in here is going to function in those 1 Corinthians 12, those miraculous manifestations of the Spirit, right, of healings and of speaking in tongues, although we all need to be open, right, if the Lord would want to use us in those ways. But even if we don't, even if we've never operated in that 1 Corinthians 12, if we've never had those gifts manifest in our ministry, Every person has a Romans 12 gift embedded within our personality. Prophecy, ministry, teaching, exhortation, giving, leading, mercy. Some people have more than one, a few operating, because it's the way that we're wired and it's that place where we're all going to function at our best individually and when you put them all together they help us to fully function as a fully functioning body collectively right then we're able to minister to many different needs and many different capacities it's the spirit was working here to add these kinds of people into the ministry And so the people were asked by the apostles, hey, tell us who the men you see that are gifted in these ways who can minister in these areas. And watch the way we see in these next couple verses, the spirit is going to bless this direction, right? He's going to, here's a spirit-led solution in verses five and six. It says that the saying pleased the whole multitude and they chose Stephen, a man of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So in this case, 
The people are nominating the men. The apostles then approved them by laying hands on them after they had prayed and sought the Lord for his guidance and approval. And I want us to be sure to notice here, it was important to lay hands on these men even though their service was mainly for what we would call practical issues. Because again, all of our service is spiritual service. And we should all count it a privilege to serve the Lord and to serve his people in these basic, practical ways. We should never see it as some sort of an unspiritual burden. Think about this. Apart from the cross itself, one of the most momentous occasions in the ministry of Jesus was when he, one of these times when he showed the ultimate measure of his love for his disciples was when he simply washed their feet. John chapter 13, there in the upper room. And this was a very practical lesson in servanthood and in humility, but in it, Jesus was demonstrating the much deeper spiritual reality of grace and of forgiveness and of the cleansing of sin. And in the very same way, the ways that we serve practically are ways that we can demonstrate the deeper spiritual realities of our faith. So these men, these were deeply spiritual men. Now, two of them we're going to get to know better. Stephen, of course, we're going to find next week. He's the very first martyr of the church. Philip, the evangelist, we'll come across later. He was the one, Philip the evangelist was the one who took the gospel up to Samaria. He's the one, you remember, that won the Ethiopian eunuch to Christ. Later we'll see him hosting the apostle Paul at Caesarea. Now the rest of the men, we don't know that much about, but what we do note about these men, I think is super interesting and it's very important. And that's this. All seven of these men had Greek names. And what that tells us is that they were most likely Greek-speaking Jews before they were converted. These were probably Hellenists themselves. So understand, the apostles had just put a team of Hellenists in charge of making sure that the Hellenist widows were taken care of. Now, some would say that this was a brilliant leadership strategy. Right? That here the apostles and the people showed great sensitivity to the offended Hellenists, right? And they, they put these guys in charge so there could be no more accusation of favoritism or, or anything like that. And this might be true, and yet I actually don't think that this was the reason at all for their selection of these seven men. Instead, it was the spirit who had raised up in the eyes and the hearts of the people and then in the apostles, the Spirit had raised up the very men who had a God-given burden and a passion for this situation and for seeing a solution to it. So, so often someone will come to me or maybe they'll come to one of the other guys ministering as a pastor here and they'll say something to us like this. They'll say, don't you see what's going on here? Right? Don't you see, you know, we need this thing or we need that ministry or we need to really help these people. And then they'll say, what are you going to do about it? You know, you're the pastor, Bill or Tosh or Mike or Jeff. Right? And more often than not, I will stare at them blankly and I will say, I have no idea. What are you going to do about it? That's the real question. Because more often than not, if you're aware of the problem and if you're passionate about the problem, it could very well be that you've been called to be part of the solution for that problem. It's like what Paul wrote to the church in, in Philippi. He said, it's God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So in other words, God gives us both the desire and he gives us the ability to do the things that please him. And the reason that you feel the burden, the reason that you're aware of the situation is because God is calling you to be part of ministering to that need. 
Pastor Dave Johnston would so often say that a burden is the spawning ground of a calling. So those things about which you feel so passionate, those are the areas that you can passionately serve. Now, I don't say all this to make you think twice about coming to us and sharing what you see as a need because you're somehow afraid you're going to get put in charge of something, although it's been known to happen, I will, I will admit that. But I say it to help us see that this is very often the way that the Lord grows a ministry. He burdens people, then he equips them so that they can be recognized and released by the leadership and that they can go and then carry out the work of the ministry according to the special gifting that they've been given for that ministry. And did you notice that all the apostles did here was to recognize and release these guys? They prayed for them and then they gave away the responsibility. And that is our heart here as well. We want to be here to support you in what the Lord is calling you to do. You know, do you feel led to minister in the jails like Dr. Vernon does each week? Okay, well, how can we help you do that? Maybe you feel led to minister out on the streets. Okay, how can we help you do that? You may feel led to do visiting in nursing homes or in convalescent facilities. Okay, how can we do that? Maybe you feel led to start a Bible study at your, at your office or maybe just in your home. Okay, we want to help you do that. And imagine if everyone here in our church were doing what the Lord was leading them to do and then making those ministries available for other people to join in and serve in and be part of. I believe that that's the vision of what the Lord wants us to do here. So as we finish up here this morning, and I promise we eventually will finish up here this morning, I want you to pray for direction on where the Lord wants to use you based on those gifts that he's given to you. And if you're not sure about what those gifts are, think about it like this. If I dropped dead up here this morning and the elders came to you and they said, please, would you be our pastor? Nobody else wants this job, right? Please, would you do this? what would be the very first thing that you would do? Now, those with the gift of prophecy would probably say, you know, this, this fellowship is wonderfully loving and it's gracious, but we need a new call to righteousness and holiness. And if I were the pastor here, I would proclaim truth boldly and I would, I would take our people to the next level spiritually. And maybe those of you who are gifted with the gift of ministry would say, you know what, if I were pastor here, I would make sure that folks are being helped practically. You know, are we helping people make sense of their finances? Are the new moms being cared for? If those of you here with the gift of teaching, you would probably say, you know, what we really need here is a deeper understanding of hermeneutics and homiletics, and we need to understand pneumatology and eschatology. We need to be more serious in our study of the word. And if you're here this morning and you have that gift of giving, you'd probably say, you know, if I were the pastor, I would raise money so that we could contribute more to missions and send people out because we need the gospel to go out in these last days. If you're here and you're gifted with leadership and administration, you'd say, you know what this church needs is some organization, right? We need to make sure that people are well organized and doing things decently and in order. And if you're here this morning and you have the gift of ministry, you'd probably say, you know what? Kindly you'd say it, right? But you'd say, you know, hospital care and visits, and we need to be concerned for the people who are homeless and the people who are hungry, and we need to have more compassion to help the people that are in need. And if you're one of those people here this morning with that gift of exhortation, right, very passionately you would probably say, you know, if I were the pastor, I would make sure we concentrated on more personal counseling. We want to we want people to respond well to their trials and we want to help them to move forward. We need more one-on-one -on -one discipleship. Now, let me ask you a question. Of all those things I just mentioned, which one of those things should we be doing as a church? All of the above, right? All of them. And with everyone ministering, as they're uniquely gifted to be ministering, 
we will be doing exactly whatever it is the Lord has for this church to be doing. Because now we have all of our unique burdens and our callings and our giftings that are not fighting against one another, but they're complementing one another because it takes the whole body to make a whole body. And it's when people are released to serve the way that they've been burdened and gifted by the Spirit to serve, that's when we start to see what the early church saw. The same thing happened to them. And look at our last verse. It says that the word of God spread and the number of the disciples multiplied, multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. So draw it however you draw it in your Bible, but understand that what we read here in verse 7 is directly connected to what just happened in verses 1 through 6. There is a clearly connected conclusion here. The ministry was expanding. There's another fresh move of the Spirit that was so powerful and so pervasive. Notice it says that even some of the priests who were serving there in the temple ministry, they saw this reality of this blossoming spirit-led ministry and they were one to faith in Jesus Christ. And I think it was in part because they saw the reality of faith in the practical service of these believers. Isn't it interesting that the very first people to be officially appointed in the early church, specifically appointed to a ministry, they weren't chosen to preach, but they were chosen for practical service. Now, nowhere in this chapter are these men called deacons. And yet most people consider that these seven men were the first to fulfill that New Testament often, the office that Paul talks about later in 1 Timothy 3. The word deacon simply means servant. And we have some super faithful men here in our church who officially serve as our official deacons, right? We have David and we have Rob and we have Holger. And these guys, each one of them, are servants to the servants because we have so many other faithful brothers and sisters who are very faithfully making all this happen every week and so much more. And that's precisely the way it should be because at some level we are all called to be deacons. You remember when Jesus came, I'm wrapping up, I promise you. Remember in Matthew chapter 10, he said something super radical, but he basically said, I'm paraphrasing, he said happiness is found in what? Losing your life. Happiness, he says, is found in giving yourself away. It's found in serving. Happiness is not found in being served. Happiness is found in giving, not getting, because this is the place where we will really find our fulfillment. And so often, if we're feeling somewhat down, sometimes it's because we're not engaging ourselves in serving others. And it's precisely that time when we feel like throwing in the towel that's the time we need to actually pick up the towel right, and wash somebody's feet because it's amazingly refreshing even to our own souls. And let me say this to those of you who are hurting right now and in a season of pain, is that our most powerful ministry will always come when we are at our weakest point because then the only thing that we have to give is Jesus. It's not going to be of us. It's going to be Jesus flowing through us. And the key is just knowing what it is that we're called to do. Just like the apostles here, they kept their focus, right? They kept their priorities in place. They did what they were called to do, and it opened up the door for others to do what they'd been called to do. And then we see that the ministry multiplied. And, you know, in these last days, we all want to be busy for the Lord. But I firmly believe that the Lord is not looking for shotgunners, right, who are going to spray bullets everywhere, hoping to hit something. But I think the Lord is looking for sharpshooters. He's looking for people that are going to focus on that one target that they've been called to focus on and be effective in that one ministry. 
right? So it's about praying for direction. What is it that the Lord is calling us to do for the kingdom? And then it's about just doing that wholeheartedly. Amen? Amen. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for this morning, Lord. And we thank you for uh, just the great encouragement, Lord, um, the way that you used these men, Lord, to serve and to minister practically, Lord, and um, the great spiritual importance um, behind that ministry. And Father, for each of us here this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would um, help us, Lord, as we seek your heart and your will, Lord, for those areas in which that you would have us to minister, Lord. Help us to be um, complementing one another, Lord, as we each minister in the uh, in the specific area, Lord, where you've burdened and you've gifted and you've enabled and equipped us, Lord, so that we truly would see um, just a robust, healthy ministry, Lord, um, multiply. And so, Father, we thank you, Lord. Pray that you'd speak to our hearts today, Lord, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's, uh, let's stand and let's worship the Lord.